0: So why don't we start by just, like, summarizing sort of where we are at this point. We've talked about the first uh, third of the record, essentially, and we've conceived of it up until this point as sort of the last part of the story so that the record is actually beginning where at the ending of the story. So I don't know, does somebody want to kind of... Sum up the theory of
1: the case so far. Well, Stephen, you are the one who posited the theory. Um, sure. So let's uh, let's dig in. So here's here it
2: is so far. Because the album is called A to B Life, and because there is this you know famous old book, Either or, by Soren Kierkegaard, that posits a choice really between these two collections of sort of fabricated found letters between the aesthetic life and the ethical life. But to me, it was an interesting thought experiment just to ask the question whether the lyrics of this album with the story they're trying to tell seem to map onto those categories. Right. Given that as a starting point, this track that we're discussing right now, A, is actually the reason why I started to imagine, well, what if what if this album doesn't really start at the beginning? Otherwise, like, why wouldn't the track called A actually be the first thing you hear at the beginning as sort of a a header before something else happens so some other stuff happens then you get a more stuff happens then you get b more stuff happens so almost the structural location of this track is what got me thinking in those terms Mm. and then when i started to look at the lyrics i thought well if this is a breakup album which everything in me sees sees the basic narrative arc as being about a breakup right then having the first line of the narrative be "Let us die, let us die" seems like the wrong place to start. That, <laughs> right. I mean, it's an interesting start for sure. And and even if we start it with gentlemen, when we get to that to that episode, you know, we'll talk about it's a different kind of interesting start there. Exactly. But but if you assume this is the beginning of the story, then. Then I don't know. I find it satisfying to think about Let Us Die being the beginning of the end and then the ghost in nice and blue talking about this thing unraveling and everything was beautiful nothing hurt being this sort of bittersweet, you know, looking back at this thing that is now over, ending with where have you gone, my love? Where have you gone? Yeah. That feels like an ending to me. It,
1: if it's not the yeah. ending, it is a ending for sure.
2: Sure. Yeah. So that would make this then the beginning, or at least a kind of a transition where the whole thing rewinds.
1: And I don't know if this goes here, but there's a a feeling that A evokes as it's Mm -hmm. transitioning from everything was beautiful. And as it's transitioning into gentlemen that we can dig into more later on as we, after Mm -hmm. we kind of talk through the the musical modes and things like that, but there's this sense of either descent or ascension or both yep. mm-hmm. in a, in a sense that it's like a whirlpool effect but is it yeah. are you spiraling down into something into nothingness perhaps uh. or are you coming out of this depth of uh, of the depth of sorrow that you're getting at the quote unquote end mm-hmm. of of everything was beautiful and yeah I, that's really exciting really yeah. exciting and I can't wait to get to the Rip roaring entrance back into the narrative of yes. gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. Oh absolutely. Yeah.
2: yeah, I mean that's hands down, one of the greatest moments in the whole album is the yeah. end of A, right into Gentlemen. Yeah. Um yes. the the way that A begins is also worth talking about though, because it's so surprising given the musical contents that have just yeah. come before it. The guitar tones are different. The feel of the drums is definitely way different. It's this sort of like rapid fire you know, it, it, it sounds like a drum machine pattern. I think it's really Ricky playing, but it it is modeled after music that would you would just set a loop on something and kind of let it right. play and you know, put right. some sense over it. And who knows? I don't know. I wasn't in the studio with them. Uh, I know, especially when they did the 15-year A to B life tour, I mean, they played these instrumental A to B mm-hmm. tracks live, but I doubt there was any other time other than that special tour that they ever did this track on stage together.
0: Yeah, uh, and it's I think it's interesting too to... To kind of note, I mean, I'm not 100% confident in terms of the music history here regarding were post-hardcore bands incorporating these kinds of, like, electro drum machine sounds into their music. I mean, certainly when you look at, like, Under Oath... Uh, their first, well, The Changing of the Times, so their first record on Solid State. Obviously, there's lots of synth sounds and kind of bloops and bleeps and that kind of thing. The Juliana Theories 2000 record, Emotion is Dead, which, so that's yeah. a couple years before this, has lots of electronic elements, including like electronic interlude stuff, like on this record. That's not really a post hardcore record. It's very much like a pop indie pop you know people call it an emo right. emo record but you know sure. very poppy like um so quite different but the same general kind of universe of, of music for sure yeah. and i don't know i mean i'm sure there there could be people screaming at their <laughs> at their uh, stereo or whatever, <laughs> right now, yeah. saying, Why didn't you think of this? I'm probably going to get like tweets for forever. Right. Because I'm not thinking exactly. of anything. But I do think that, I yeah. mean, it's not that these sounds were like totally innovative or something like that. They, I think they definitely evoke a certain era of Absolutely. not just electronic music, but indie music that uses electronic Mm-hmm. Sounds the drum pattern and and the use of the the pads and everything reminds yeah. me sort of vaguely of other yeah. stuff that was going on right around this time. I mean, certainly this was just one year before the Postal Service record dropped, right? Mm-hmm. That basically, ex- you know, blew open the door for this sort of drum machine indie kind of you know sound to to yeah. be like huge. It, you
1: know but it. it- oddly reminds me of, I watched a documentary fairly recently about uh, Woodstock 99, which was a very like aggressive, kind of brocore core uh, uh, festival there yes. was a lot of you know kid rock and new metal people playing there but at night they had electronic music yeah and so it was this weird whiplash and then you yeah. throw in jewel and alanis morissette and um th- there were only three women on the bill and i can't remember the third but it's you know they interviewed moby for this mm-hmm. documentary right. and he's like this is why am I here why did they why did they book me for this and it's this weird like there is something fans of certain aggressive music can also have this connection to electronic music and what we're seeing here is the bleeding together of those two and Joel you're absolutely right like the Postal Service album is a great example of the doors being blown wide open for oh that isn't it's own weird thing for people who have computers and like take the time to learn about doing a bunch of electronic stuff, which doesn't feel like music to a lot of people. Yeah. And actually showing, oh, there it has a lot of musical relevance. And I
0: mean, there had the been, works. I mean, to be clear, there had been lots of indie, uh, like, Dintel, D-N-T-E-L, um, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. I think the Album Leaf is sort of around that same time. And sure. also, I mean, Magnetic Fields and, um, you know, mm-hmm. lots of indie bands were using electronic sounds drum machines synthesizers that that kind of thing one quick side note one of my cousins played at woodstock 99 um (laughs) he was the drummer in a band called oleander which had like one moderately successful single in the late 90s, but yeah, he, play, he played. I remember that. He, yeah. he yeah, was I, one I of the, do
1: vaguely remember the name Bully Ender. Yeah, I think they had a
0: yeah, song. I think they're I think it was on the the Spider Man soundtrack or something. Like they had a song mm. that played during the credits. That was obviously a couple years later.
2: So, to place this in its cultural moment, what we're saying is basically A to B Life is a Woodstock 99 tribute album. They were really trying 100%. to capture that, yep. that vibe and just bottle it up in, in, in one yes, record. That's, uh, yes,
1: you can take that to the bank, folks. That's, there you go. So, you know, but in the
2: context of the album, it's still it's surprising when this track comes Definitely. in, even if it's in, Definitely. In, in, in the water in larger musical culture. And, and from a, a music theory standpoint, what actually happens, the, f- the switch that flips when you get out of the end of Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt, and then you get right into A, which are totally seamless. I mean, they're, they're constructed in such a way that there is no pause, the music flows from one into the other. They're designed yep. to play back to back. So we've just established and reestablished and reestablished, you know, circling back round and round again from B minor, E minor. F sharp major and then and that's the loop at the end of everything was beautiful and nothing hurt Mm -hmm. it establishes the key of B minor unambiguously repeats it over and over and over again the the note that makes that land at home so strongly every time is an A sharp so we've got and that, that pull up is what makes it really feel like you're at home in B yeah. minor. Musically, as soon as this track A starts, you want to guess what note comes back into the mix? Gotta be. Is it is a, it A? A. In fact, it's A. <laughs> uh, so
1: now we have. So a half we, step down.
2: Half step down. So. So oh, Dan. <laughs> the pitch content of this instrumental track can be read in different ways in terms of, of tonal center and key. It doesn't have a traditional chord structure. You couldn't like put a chord chart together and say, well, this is how you play A. It's just <laughs> right. there's multiple moving lines that are all swirling around each other. But the actual pitch set that you're dealing with, in one way to read it, is, is a B natural minor scale. Which is all the same notes is that is that B harmonic minor we were just in except for that it goes A to B, mm-hmm. not A right. sharp to B. It's a softer mm-hmm. sound. It's, so it's it's le- it has less that dramatic pull you know up right. to there. Yeah. It also can be read in a different way. As an a mixolydian scale exactly the same pitches but it's just it's just an a major scale with a flat seven so that's a major that's a mixolydian mm, so ah. you can you can read this as a as a variation on an a major scale or a variation on a b minor scale or you can just read it as being in d Want a straightforward major scale, and all the notes that show up in this A track, D major is actually the key that you get all those in. Hmm. D major and B natural minor are the exact same key signature, and then A mixolydian, right. nobody really cares about, but it's it's a way you can read this. <sighs> And, and there's at least three different musical lines that come to the surface in this thing. So, so there's, there's some interesting guitar effects that make these sort of swoopy sounds, and yeah. mm-hmm. there's some affected vocals. We'll talk about vocals in a minute, but at least the two major musical lines that I hear repeated over and over again are the bass pulling downwards to B with these three notes. And it's a little slower than that and i'm not doing it in time because it's all synced up with this this crazy drum pattern yeah but it's it's a it's a low
1: b natural
2: a g natural f sharp and that repeats that's what the bass is doing which sounds very much like it's establishing this low like b minor sound at the same time guitar or synth or something up in the upper of register is trying to pull it up towards a so you hear this melody playing And it lands right there f sharp g a two out of the three notes are the exact same as what the bass are doing it's that f sharp and that g are shared between those two tunes but the higher voice is pulling it up to that a natural lower voice is pulling it down to that b and the bass register so we have these two transitional pitches pulling it up to a down to b at the same time through this whole track and in the middle of all that you have this voice just alternating, really. And it's not a constant trill, but Like that's what the voice is doing. It's a It's a D natural and a C sharp, which are, as it happens, the two notes that define B minor and a major. <laughs> So we have the two notes that would either like tend to make this feel like it's, it's trying to land in, in either A major or B minor. All that musical information is present, but it's sort of in this nebulous form that's just a potentiality. It, it doesn't land mm. anywhere. It's just the two places that this can logically go are A major and B minor. And that's my <laughs> TED Talk. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, but that's that's so fascinating because it's so it it corroborates my. I'm not even going to call it a theory, but just my thought of it being this mix, this potentiality of mm-hmm. it up and down, of sinking and and arising. and yep. so we could take that thematically, as in the story theme, mm-hmm. a couple different ways. So let's let's posit that your theory is correct that we just heard the ending of the narrative. Mm-hmm. So either we as the audience are Christopher Nolan style being like taken back or David Lynch style being taken back to the beginning of the narrative Mm -hmm. through some weird time warp or it's a memory. Mm -hmm. And so the narrative isn't actually done or is this a third option or just an alternate version of reading of that? Like, because we've had the Vonnegut reference, Mm -hmm. it came out to me like, ah, What if the narrator of this album is unstuck from time Mm. and is experiencing the order of this differently and knows what's happening, but can't do anything about it? And I like once I thought of that, I was like, that's it. That's really cool. (laughs) Because it makes there's some there's some incongruous stuff in gentlemen, like gentlemen also feels Gentleman almost feels like after a breakup and you're like stalking your ex or something like it, you could read it as that. Yeah. And so I was like, eh, this is weird as the beginning of something. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that next time. But yeah, with that thought, it's like, okay, so what if the narrator knows what's coming, but still has to play out the, I'm not dating you yet. so we keep running to into each other and i have this like resentment that can't be released because it's oh man (laughs) what you're saying is
2: that this is not only a tribute to woodstock 99 but we should be picturing bill murray as the narrator of the album that (laughs) that, wow yes it just gets better all the time
1: it does it does
0: (laughs) man People are listening right now, going like, "I was with them until this episode,"
1: yep. and then <laughs> it just became this huge this train
0: wreck. We have, uh, <laughs> we have no lyrics
2: to talk about. Exactly.
0: <laughs> well, no. So, I, I, th- I mean, I, I'll say, I, I appreciate that the musical explanation because I think it does make a lot of sense. It puts words to. Yeah. sort of the feelings i think mm-hmm, that exactly uh that the track evokes because there is this kind of tension throughout the whole thing that doesn't really get released until the start of gentleman right yep. you know i think the tension is is in part because there isn't any traditional chord structure there's no real melody you know and your ear is like searching for that obviously listening Mm -hmm. to just a a record uh, you know you're going to be doing that and to hear like the explanation of the fight if you will between the A and the B minor I think Mm -hmm. makes a ton of sense Um, absolutely yeah and I think it could be understood it it does feel like you're kind of flying through some sort of vortex in space time or uh, even if you're just going back in time in your own mind right I think gentlemen. I think the lyrical content is so strong and so mm. starkly contrastable with the first four tracks that it just, this theory, as soon as Stephen put that out there, I was like, oh my gosh, that that makes the album make so much more sense.
1: It really <laughs> does.
0: It, it, you know, because this really does, I think, mark... An obvious transition, like from one set of themes to something else. And I think it does make sense to say that that something else is the beginning of the story, right? Not the continuation from the end of
2: Everything is Beautiful, but going back to some prior point. And I think those sounds in in this track are, um, you know, I can I can picture a, a sort of a time warp scenario, or even something as simple as just like a tape rewinding. Some of those like mm, zippy exactly. things that are going up, yeah. But they evoke yeah. that kind of feeling that like something's right. being manipulated here that yes. is pulling us somewhere. I want to talk about the voices. Part of it is towards the end of it. There's this really modified voice that's up in a super high register and it's this kind of weird whizzing by sound and it i can often you know.
1: reminds me of oh what's the smith song that it reminds me of um big mouth strikes again towards the end of the the song big mouth strikes again there's this like highly modified mm-hmm. upper register voice and i always thought to myself like you were writing that in like 84 like how are they yeah. doing that <laughs> it, it, it takes me right to that yep in a yeah well.
2: So we've got that sound, uh, which uh-huh. plays into the, either the, the sort of, you know, fantastical time warp thing, or, or again, like, like literally when you play a tape, you know, if you like Too press, press exactly. rewind, like, and you actually listen for the sound, you can hear that kind of yeah. thing in there. So that that plays into it. But before that voice comes in, there's there's a clearer, like, natural register voice singing. Mm. Um, it sounds like Dan, the bass player, to me. Uh, mm. It's the same voice that comes in and sings that whole first section of everything was beautiful and nothing hurt that doesn't get credited in the lyrics. Like that part isn't printed Yeah, um, that we talked about last time is being, it, it seems to be like a, like a feminine presence that this is like the other character getting a moment speak. If you want to keep on that train and think, okay, this, this presence of an other is having a chance to have a voice in this track. That's, that's interesting in its own right. But something that strikes me is that, it's not just oohs and ahs and whatever. It's actually not in that much of the track. It it comes and goes just a little bit. But to me, it sounds like this other voice sings the words, you know, uh, on this. You know. And those, you know, it's just very simple two words, but a very evocative two words.
1: Where have you gone, my love? You know. Ooh,
2: I didn't even think about that. <laughs>
1: that's that's really
2: cool. At the, so the question gets answered. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's other things that are definitely pull, pulling the story forward out of, of um, Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt, just sonically. There's some of these like affected guitar sounds that come in at that midpoint of Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt. The moment mm-hmm. that you get into that B minor loop, there's some guitar tones we had never heard yet that end up being the, the kind of main featured thing in this A track. Uh, that are just kind of one element of the background and everything was beautiful. So, but I love that of that being an answer to the question, Mm -hmm. you know, but also at the same time, you know, if, if we're pulling um, like out in two directions and this voice is saying, you know, even without answering the question, where have you gone, my love? Right. Having 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 that as an answer to an unasked question is also really evocative, and I and I, I like reading it either way. Um,
1: oh, none of this is definitive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's and, really cool. I mean,
2: you know, I I keep bringing this back around only because I feel like it's sort of it's possible to read the the aesthetic ethical life decision as. As a parallel if not identical to the you know the decision in the garden of eden between choosing the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil if you want to pull that sort of layer of of narrative into it then the word no has a very loaded meaning to say you know right at the beginning of this you know decision between this a and the b but even just like the word you and i don't mean to like make make mountains out of molehills of every tiny thing but like you know, the band is called Me Without You and the you invoked here, you know, if it's the feminine voice singing, maybe it's the masculine narrator who's who's the recipient of that. But everywhere else in the album, there's this strong presence of a you that is this, you know, divine other. And, and so I mean, I'm just throwing out like a menu option of <laughs> ways to read. Yeah. I, what, what can you do yeah. with these two words? But, you know, it's, it's a supposedly instrumental track with this heavy presence of a human voice in the middle. Yeah. Yeah,
1: well, you know what it reminds me of, and uh, Stephen, I'm almost surprised you haven't brought it up yet. Is the the Orpheo story that we yeah talked talked yep. a lot about? Yep. And there's this kind of liminal space going on. Yep. Right, like this transition, whether it's a threshold between narrative arcs. So mm-hmm. whatever, you, however you want to read that right. as as simply as possible, or as you know, Doctor Who in the later years, uh, complicated as <laughs> I was getting there with the. You know the unstuck from time stuff i'm i'm there with you yeah cool cool yeah, i'm glad we're all on board with this we're, we're yes. just gonna make this <laughs> this, is, this is everyone
2: this is a time travel album yes,
1: yes. <laughs> this, is, this is a uh a rock opera about time travel and heartbreak and uh getting lost in the divine that's yeah. that's what this album is yep oh boy but <laughs> It, well, the the Orpheus story actually really works because you know there's depictions of descending into Hades yep. as kind of this like swirling, mm-hmm. metaphoric, you know, seeing that. And I'm thinking of the Disney uh, 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 representation of it there, especially. But um, as you should, as we all should. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but of course. But I love that if if the, if the if
2: the if the answer you know as to the question where you gone my love. Yeah. Man, what an answer that is. Like, like you had one job. Don't look back. <laughs> yep.
1: I really like that, what you just said, Stephen, because then it takes the narrator. Like, the narrator just became the least reliable narrator. Like, not sometimes <laughs> false, but completely wrong, because if it was actually all his fault, because he, we'll just use Orpheo, he yeah. looked back. Right. Oh boy, he gave up on his uh, evangelizing to his partner. That, right. You know we could Im- mm-hmm. impart it as that. Oh boy, sure. that's yeah. that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Joel, get us out of this. I'm getting depressed.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, well, I mean, so we we also you know wanted to talk a little bit more about the production. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of the record, since you know. Uh, the track is short, and there's not as uh, <laughs> although somehow we pulled all of that out of this <laughs> <laughs> this instrumental track. Oh my gosh! I, I I have to say to everybody, I am like just in awe of you two, especially just like listening to you guys go <laughs> go off on this. Yes. I'm I'm seriously impressed. You're welcome. Um, but yeah, so. You know, when we were doing the very first overview episode, you know, we we did talk a little bit about influences or adjacent-sounding bands, but we didn't, even in the A to B Life overview episode, we didn't really talk about, like, the production and who produced this record. And I think that a lot of people perhaps don't necessarily pay attention to that kind of thing. But I think that if... You know, as, you know, like we were just talking about at the beginning of this episode, like trying to situate the album, situate the the sounds and what is being produced here with this record into the broader stream of music history. Then talking about someone, you know, the producer and 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 all that stuff is, I think, important and valuable. So the person who produced this record is named Jay Robbins. Um, Jay Robbins was in a a very pretty pretty influential, pretty important uh, and popular emo band in the 90s called Jawbox. Jawbox was one of a number of bands in that era, including Jawbreaker and Sunny Day Real Estate, who were emo bands signed to major labels. I think a lot of people especially, like, people sort of around our age, like, millennials, right, um, kind of uh, are under the impression that emo didn't become, like, commercial or mainstream or something until, like, My Chemical Romance uh, you know, or Fallout, Fallout Boy. Boy. But that's not true. I mean, Jawbox, Jawbreaker, Sunny Day Real Estate, Quicksand, Rival Schools, all of those bands, hardcore, post-hardcore emo bands – were on major labels, and, and there were more than just those. And so they didn't have the, like, tons of mainstream radio play yet. I mean, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that they were on the same level as a Fallout Boy or My Chemical Romance sure. were, you know, 10 years later. But they definitely had major label attention. They were on MTV. They played 120 minutes. They, you know, um, they were well-known. And, you know, I think about the sound of Jawbox and sort of the angular guitar work. There's sort of a style of kind of, uh, you know, what's often called math rock um, slash. Mm-hmm emo that is sort of related to the midwest emo i mean certainly a band like cap and jazz um which is like the the trunk of the midwest emo tree yeah. um, has this sound of of these kind of harsh angular guitars uh and you can definitely hear that come through on This record. And so, just to give everybody sort of an idea of how how many records Jay Robbins has produced on Discogs, which Mm -hmm. is, if you don't know what that is, that's a um, sort of uh, a database for uh, music releases where people can also uh, sell buy and sell uh, copies of of music. Discogs has him credited as a producer on 185 records since 1992. So in roughly 30 years, he has produced 185 (laughs) records, (laughs) which is an astonishing, astonishing output.
1: Yeah. I
0: mean, that's just, that's wild. Like one Um, every other month.
2: Right. I (laughs) mean, it's
0: just a crazy... Uh, number. So um, you know, not not all of these bands that I'm gonna name here, I won't read all of them. Um, but you know, not all of them are super well known. But some of them, you know, if you know anything about the history of emo, um, you mm-hmm. know, you should know these records. So for example, Texas is the reasons, do you know who you are? That is Often considered to be arguably the greatest emo record of the 1990s. Two Promise Ring records. Nothing feels good. Very emergency. Just Brazil. Braids. Frame and Canvas. Another yeah, just- like seminal, super important emo record of the 90s. Um, let's see some other, some lesser known emo bands, but still really good. I think an important engine down. Pilot to Gunner. Um, he produced two Fairweather records, uh, Hey Mercedes Evernight Fireworks, which is another super important early 2000s emo record. Oh, cool. Um,
1: I didn't know he did Maritime Glass Floor. That's awesome.
0: Yep. Yep. Maritime. Yep. Yeah. That's a great, that is a great record too. Uh, he did a small brown bike record. Um, more recently he produced... Have Mercy's The Earth Pushed Back, which is mm. uh, an incredible emo revival record. Tiny, Tiny Moving Parts Pleasant Living, which I think is that band's best album by far. And also a super influential 2010's emo revival yeah. record. I mean, this guy has been, in every decade, he has produced some record that has been crucially important to the development of this music that we're talking about Mm -hmm. so you know maybe on the uh on the website or something or or instagram or somewhere we will we'll we'll put a list yeah in the show notes of of the records he has produced but and this list obviously includes a to b life another Arguably um just a turning point record. And and Me Without You is not the only uh tooth and nail band that Jay Robbins worked with. He also worked with a band called Roadside Monument um, mm-hmm. and produced their record I Am the Day of Current Taste, which Roadside Monument is really only known to people who are sort of like diehard tooth and nail people or you know, sort of younger Gen X, very old millennial. Of people, um, they were kind of a post hardcore math rock band, um, way ahead of their time, way, way ahead of their time, I think. Mm. But it's fascinating, I think, to sort of look at this list and see Me Without You as part of this list, and it makes so much sense because you can sort of hear the similarities, I think, when you start to compare what's going on with all these bands yeah, I, and certainly I'm, the, the influence of, of J Robin's own sort of musical style as well. Yeah.
2: yeah. I wanted to ask about that. Cause I'm, I don't know all that music that you just listed off, but I'm <laughs> fascinated that those are all these like seminal albums within that scene that when, when you see his name attached to it, you think, oh, of course that makes sense. You know, that, that he yeah. was the producer and all these different things. So how would you define his sort of sound or his like, Effect on mm. this music? Oh my gosh! That made me without you sound the way they did on this one because it's A to B life is very different than anything else they did afterwards.
1: That's so, a very for, hard question.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, I think that there is there's a kind of like charming rawness to J. Robbins' records. Like, yeah. he is not a perfectionist when you listen to his records you are going to hear things that sound like they could be mistakes but that to me that's what makes the records good mm-hmm. like Agreed. i i am certainly of an era and of and of an opinion that you know once like more pop punk and emo bands started becoming like very very slickly produced. Yeah. That's when I started to lose interest. Mm-hmm. Um so like I never really got into Fall Boy or you know that kind of thing. Um because it was too slick for me. Like it's catchy, the songs are fun, you know, whatever, but I I missed that um yeah. sort of charm of imperfection. Like that's Part of what makes emo emo <laughs> to me mm-hmm. is that is that you are playing your instrument so fervently that you're going to mess up sometimes, right? And also this sound as if the whole song could just like spin apart, break apart at like any moment. Yes. Um, I feel like Jay Robbins is also very good at capturing that. And it's not as though these records are like recorded live or something like that. Like, that's not how, you know, he tracks, he does the normal thing. Um, but he's still able to sort of capture that, uh, kind of urgency that, um, that, uh, yeah, the, the, the emotional, yeah. uh, kind of expression of the instruments, uh, and the voice and, and all of that, um, And I mean, yeah, I'm just looking at this list of records. I'm like, yeah, that is true of every single
1: one of these records on this list. Thank you. Even in a unique sense. Because, you know, I mean, War on Women, I don't know when their self title came out, but they're a very relevant, you know, punk outfit today. Like, yes. Still are very much so. Small Brown Bikes Fell and Found was 2012. I mean, that's that's not that recent, but it's also. Yeah. 10 years after A to B life. And it has this polished is definitely not the right word. Cause you're absolutely right. Joel that.
0: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, even so an- another, I think good band to like sort of talk about in this vein is the band La mm. um, which has, or had a member of small Brown bike mm. in it. Uh, the bass player was in a band called 12 hour turn, which was like a lesser known emo band on the East coast. Um, and they are a female-fronted, sort of post-punk band. Okay. And post-punk is a genre that, like, does tend to be much more polished. Yes. Um, and tight, you know, sort of tightly constructed. Um, and Lepeche's 2021 record "Blood in the Water," which Jay Robbins produced, um, it it is. I mean, all of their records have that sort of post-punkness to it, that kind of tight um, construction. But there's still there's this there's this texture. There's it, some yeah. there's yeah there's some kind of like intangible quality that he brings to the record where it's not. Um, it doesn't feel like so compressed. So yeah. um, Like so plastic, if that makes sense. There, there's something that feels very organic about all of his uh,
2: records. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I would agree. <laughs> well, of I the feel ones like I know on this I list. Mean, yeah.
2: That's as good a place as any to just, just talk about the, the way that this a track is produced and how it, forms a bridge because it has this kind of unrelenting energy to it, even though of, you know, of everything in this album, it's the one, this and B are the things that sound the least like a straightforward live performance. Um, there's right. these mm-hmm. interesting extra layers of synth and guitar that are kind of coming in. These vocals sound like they were added after the fact. It doesn't sound like, you know, if, if it is Dan singing that line that may or may not be the words, you know, that like, he was like mm-hmm. waiting for his moment, like, okay, like, I'm, you know, measure, Sixteen. I'm gonna come in and sing like it. You know, it's like probably all this stuff was pieced together after the fact,
1: mixed after the fact. Yeah. But
2: even so, it still has this unrelenting energy that just drives it straight out of the track before it and and headlong into the beginning of Gentleman, uh, where these little zippy reverse sounding guitar swoops all of a sudden sort of aggregate into this sound that just that just drags you into the downbeat <laughs> of the next track. Yeah, and that's and that's, that's got to be the producer's hand on that to make that all happen. Oh, for sure. Um, so thank you, Jay. Yeah, hats off <laughs> to Jay Robbins. Um,
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple and Spotify. This is really important to help us grow the podcast and uh, make it easier for other folks to find us.
1: We're on Instagram and Facebook at Us Without Them Pod. And we also have a Facebook group, Us Without Them Podcast. You can find us on Twitter, at Us Without Them. And be sure to share us on all of those social platforms as well.
0: You can email us questions and comments at uswithoutthempod at gmail.com. Or you can call us at 405-FOXES-05. That's 405-369-3705 to leave us a voicemail, which we may... On an episode. Don't forget to also visit our website, uswithoutthempod.com, where you can find episode descriptions, blog posts posts that
1: expand on some of the philosophical ideas that we discussed, show notes that include links to things like music books and other resources we reference, as well as some merch items from time to time. Anyway, bye and see you next time. Okay, hopefully that is good enough.